are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Well, it's our great privilege to gather as God's people and pray together, so let's pray. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Father, we gather this morning from all sorts of different contexts. Some of us arrive with joy in our hearts, some with sadness, some experiencing trouble, but we confess with one voice, we need you, and we need to look to you, hope in God, for you are our salvation and our God. And we are so thankful that you indeed are our salvation and that you are our God, that you have indeed worked for our good in our lives, and we know it. You have redeemed us from our sin when we were lost, when we were doing evil deeds, when we were alienated from you and from others. Your grace and your mercy appeared. You lavished love upon us when we were unlovable, and you canceled our sins with the blood of your Son. You poured your Spirit out into our hearts, conquering our rebellion, and you called us sons and daughters. So we rejoice in you. You truly are our salvation, and you are our God. We see in your scriptures that it is your purpose to dwell with us and among us. We taste the first fruits of it now with the work of your spirit and we long and we look forward to the great day when heaven will come to earth and you will dwell in our midst for all time. Father, we say with the psalmist, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And so, Father, we long for you. We long for you now as your people. And we pray as your people that you would increase our desires for communion, for fellowship with you. We ask that you would increase our desires for Bible reading. Oh, that we would be a a people who zealously study your word and are disciplined to take it in. Father, we pray that you would increase our desires for, for private prayer, that we would be a people who commune with you. Father, we pray that you would increase our desires for, for corporate worship that you would increase our desires to listen to the preaching of the word, to to participate in in corporate prayer, to sing the praises with the saints of God. We we ask that you would increase our desires for corporate worship. Father, we pray that you would increase our desires for doing good, for being generous with each other. 
Father, we pray that you would increase our desires for fellowship, that we might share our lives with each other. Father, we ask that you would increase our desires for communion with you. Father, we're so thankful that we can gather this morning as one people and hear your word, and we need your word today. We need to hear of the work of Christ Jesus and what it means for us and what it has accomplished. Father, we ask now that as we turn to your word that you would refresh us, that you would make clear this great salvation that you have worked through the the gospel of your Son. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear now. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, friends, we are going to continue on in the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, grab them, open them up to Mark chapter 14. Our sermon spans from verse 12 to verse 25. So Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12. Let's give our attention to God's good words. Mark records, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, who is one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born." And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and we had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God." Father, would you bless the reading and the preaching of your word to us now? Amen. So we have the text before us, these these sacred words of Jesus as we close in upon his death. And we can frame this text by asking an initial question, a very broad question. What is the religion of Christianity all about? What is the religion of Christianity all about? Perhaps you get this question from a coworker who has been watching you and they're interested in, in Christianity, 
what is the religion of Christianity all about? And as you, you think about the question and think about answering the question, you realize very quickly that there is a lot to this thing, this religion called Christianity. Where do you start? Well, first, there's the matter of our, our beliefs. Christians, we hold on to a book that's divinely inspired by, by God, and this book is filled with stories. Stories about gardens and snakes, stories about boats and animals, stories about deliverance and seas being split open, stories about tragedy and loss, stories about a bloody cross. And as you continue to think about it, well, this book is also filled with laws and, and rules, telling you how to spend your time, how to spend your money, how to, how to pursue romance. And this book demands certain actions from those who, who read it. And, and not to be forgotten, as you consider this book, it, it's filled with, with doctrine. Words like faith and repentance, justification and sanctification appear in this book. And so as you think about answering the question, your, your mind is rummaging through all of the beliefs that Christians hold. Then you also start thinking about a second matter, the, the practices of Christianity, the, the rites and the ceremonies that Christians practice. And as you think about it, you, you realize we, we regularly gather together, devote ourselves on a specific day of the week to certain activities. On that day, a, a man stands up and he reads a, a passage of the Bible, he explains it and then applies it. And preaching isn't the only thing that happens on that specific day of the week. People gather together and they sing and they pray, they eat together. And sometimes people get wet head to toe. And so there's the question before you. Well, what is the religion of Christianity all about? How do all of these stories, how do all of these doctrines, how do all of these practices fit together in a coherent shape? How do they drive together in a, a, a specific direction? What is the religion of Christianity all about. And the good news is that there is indeed internal coherency to Christianity, both in the stories we find in the Bible and doctrines we find in the Bible and in the practices we perform week by week. And it's so important as Christians that we, we gain an understanding of this coherence because certainly someone's going to ask us, what is Christianity all about? And so we can take a st couple steps back and, and consider this Question, and I think two words help us make sense of Christianity. And the first word is communion. So God created humanity for the purpose of fellowship with him. He created us so that we would be bound to him in a unique relationship filled with, with love and obedience and joy. And we get an idea of what God intended for our lives when we consider the metaphors that, that are used throughout the scriptures. This communion bond is, is spoken with, with figures of speech like a, a father and his children or a husband with his wife. And so we can state very clearly, very simply, we've been created by God for communion with him. And this truth governs all that we find in the Christian religion. All the stories in the Bible from the garden to the exodus to Jesus' ministry fit within this structure. They all bend towards this end of communion with God. And all the rites and practices we perform week by week fit within this structure, communion for God. So the first word is communion, but there's, there's also a second word, and it's sacrifice. And it doesn't take too much work by reason or by scripture to realize that this goal of communion with God has been ruptured. Something has gone wrong in this world. We see it in the scriptures. 
Due to sin and rebellion, Adam and Eve are what? They're, they're driven out of the garden. Fellowship with God is, is broken. And we see it around us in our city, in the news. We see it in our own hearts. But as we turn to the scriptures, we see that God in his mercy has not closed his heart towards communion. And there is a way back towards God, only one way back to God, and it's through sacrifice. And it's for this reason, when you read the story of the scriptures, you find sacrifice at all the critical junctures. In the life of Abraham, on the eve of the Exodus, at the inauguration of the temple, everything in the story of the scriptures hangs upon bloody sacrifices given to God for the sake of reconciliation. And so this is where we come into contact with our passage in the Gospel of Mark. When we read this this story about Jesus' ministry, we're not reading another story among other stories. Now, when we read the story about Jesus in the context of the scriptures, we're reading the very climax of the story. We get this sense of urgency from Jesus' own preaching ministry. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And as we think about this, if Jesus' story is the climax of the scriptures, we would expect then that these two words... Communion and sacrifice would be found in Jesus' ministry, that these two words would come into to clear focus. We would expect to find in Jesus' story the last sacrifice for sins that would finally affect communion with God for all time. So this is our, our plan for our time together. We're going to read through our text together, looking for these two words, communion and sacrifice. And then we're going to apply these two words to our hearts. So let's give ourselves the text, looking with a keen eye for our two words, sacrifice and communion. So verse 12, look there with me. Mark records, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So as we close in on Jesus' death in the Gospel of Mark, Mark as an author is working really hard that we might make a connection between Jesus' death and the celebration of the Passover. This theme is blatant. You cannot miss it. So if you go back to the beginning of chapter 14, looking at verse 1, Mark makes this connection for us. He says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As we move through chapter 14, we see that chapter 14 is consumed with this this theme of the Passover. Our text records the preparation for the Passover and then finally the the celebration of the Passover. And Mark is teaching us here, if we're paying attention, he's saying something like this. If you want to understand Jesus, if you want to understand his coming death, you need to connect his ministry with the celebration of the Passover. And so we have to ask, well, what is this thing called the Passover. Well, the Passover is grounded in the context of redemption. The Passover marked the birth of Israel as a nation when when the Lord drew near to his people and rescued them from Egypt. And not surprisingly, when you think about the Passover, our two words are found there, sacrifice and communion. When you read about the Passover in the Old Testament, the whole feast centered around the sacrifice of a male lamb without blemish. Each household would take one of these lambs and slaughter it. 
They would prepare the meat of this lamb and eat it together, and the blood of this lamb would be smeared on the lintels and the doorposts of their their homes. And each year, Israel would remember how the Lord passed over them and destroyed the Egyptians. There's sacrifice in this festival, but there's also communion. And we can ask, well, what was the result of the Passover? Well, it's this, Israel was saved from slavery and oppression so that they would go and worship the Lord. You see this in the Exodus account, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, the Lord says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. What is that text revealing to us? Well, the sacrifice of Passover prepared the way for what? Communion with God. That's what the Exodus event is all about that God might dwell with his people on a holy mountain. And so Mark wants us to make this connection between the Passover and Jesus' death, and he's laboring that we might see it and that we wouldn't miss it. And so we ask as readers, well, what does this connection mean for us, this connection between the Passover and Jesus' death? Well, Mark wants us to keep reading and think about this. So look back at verse 12. We see that the Passover is close at hand and all of Jerusalem was preparing for it. But Jesus and his disciples are visitors in the city. They're not from Jerusalem. They're out of towners. And so the disciples come to Jesus and ask him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And essentially, the disciples are asking Jesus, Jesus, did you make any reservations for us? This is where the story gets interesting. Look at verses 13 through 16. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. These verses are so interesting because what we find in these verses is definitely cloak and dagger, something right out of a spy movie. Jesus has made extensive plans to celebrate the Passover, but he has done them in such a way that they will not be found out by the religious leaders who are seeking his life. And in these verses, as we consider the extensive preparations that Jesus made for the Passover, go into the city, look for this man carrying a jar, follow him, and then when he leads you to this house, say, the master has need of it. Jesus has made all of these preparations, and we get the sense that Jesus really wants to partake of this meal with his disciples, that he sees it as absolutely necessary that they have this meal before he goes to the cross. So the text moves then into the Passover. And there was a set way that the Passover would have been celebrated within Israel. Certain dishes would have been passed in a certain order and and certain cups would have been drunk in a, a certain order. Prayers and readings would have been read and chanted together recounting how the Lord delivered Israel from Egypt. However, when we read on in our text, Mark's recording of this meal is is very unique. Because the focus of this text is not on the different elements of the meal, however interesting that might be for us. Even more, the focus of this text is not on the past deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Rather, the focus of this meal is directly upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the redemption that he is going to accomplish for the people of God. 
What we find in this text is uninterrupted focus on Jesus Christ himself as he explains and applies the gospel to his men. And so as we look at the the Passover celebration in verses 18 through 25, we see Jesus teaching his disciples, and he wants to get three matters down deep into their souls. And so the first thing that Jesus wants his men to understand during this meal is that everything that's going to happen to him in the next hour, so we're thinking about Jesus' betrayal, we're thinking about his unjust trial, we're thinking about his beatings and torture that he will receive, and we're, we're thinking about the death he will receive on the cross. All of these gruesome things that are going to happen to him are going to happen to him according to the sovereign plan of God. It's so interesting to watch Jesus so closely in this text. We don't find Jesus fretting or worrying. He knows the plan of God, and he's committed to the plan of God. Jesus starts speaking to his men in language that would have shocked them. Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, the one who is eating with me. Troubling words, and the disciples are troubled by what Jesus says, and they're quick to abscond themselves from this. But Jesus doubles down on his saying. He knows his betrayer, and he knows what his betrayer will do according to the plan of God. None of this has caught him off guard. And and Jesus wants his disciples to understand that the purposes of God's salvation, the redemption of the people of God, all of these good things are going to happen through some very ugly things, even the treachery and treason of Judas. God is going to work Judas's evil for good. Verses 20 and 21, Jesus says, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So Jesus looks at his men. He wants them to understand the sovereign plan of God. And they need to know this to make sense of his death. The second thing that Jesus wants his disciples to understand is the significance, the meaning of his death. We can say certainly that Jesus' death would have been a, a tragedy. It's a, it's a miscarriage of justice. But we have to say more about this. Jesus wants his men to understand. He wants us to understand that his death is the last sacrifice for sin. And so we've heard these words hundreds of times in our lives. Jesus says, take, this is my body. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And Jesus makes clear in these words that his death is an activity directed towards God to deal with the sins of his people. Jesus understands in these words that he is taking upon himself the mantle of the suffering servant where he's going to go suffer for his people. This all becomes plain when we start to compare Jesus' words with words that we find in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. Listen carefully. Jesus says in our text, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now listen to what Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 53, verse 12. Isaiah says, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And when we make this connection between Jesus' words in this supper and what Isaiah writes about in Isaiah 53, we, we see the heart of the gospel. 
In this great sacrifice, Jesus reveals he's going to substitute himself to God for his people. And what a sacrifice this is. Jesus reveals in this supper that he's not going to hold one, he's not going to hold back one piece of existence. He's preaching to his men, here is my body, here is my blood, here is my entire being poured out to God for you. One man's going to stand before God in the place of many, bearing the sin of the many. So Jesus wants his disciples to understand the meaning of his death. It's the last sacrifice for sins. And there's the third thing. Jesus wants his disciples to understand the accomplishment of his death. So we see the sovereign plan of God. We see that Jesus is the last sacrifice of sins. And we ask, well, where is this heading? What is the direction of all of this? And we see in our text that the result of Jesus' death is lasting communion between God and man. So the blood of Jesus poured out does not simply just secure the forgiveness of sins, but it actually binds the people of God to God forever. Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. When you go back to the Old Testament, you quickly realize that the prophets were looking forward to something in God's plan. They knew that a great day was coming when something would change, when lasting communion would take place between God and his people. And Ezekiel wrote about this great day in chapter 36, verses 25 through 28. He wrote this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. So here's Jesus. They're in this upper room, and as they're partaking of this meal, he reveals that what Israel's prophets longed for, what they anticipated, is coming true in his ministry. Jesus applies the new covenant to his disciples. Jesus is preaching to his men. The day of renewed fellowship between God and man has come. The father and his children will be reunited. The husband and his wife will find intimacy once again. The people of God will be able to enter into a relationship with God full of obedience, love, and joy. Jesus wants his disciples to understand the result of his death. It results in lasting communion. A people bound to God through his blood. And so there we have the, the text and the meal. We've seen our two words, sacrifice and communion, and we can go back to how we began. Well, what is this religion of Christianity all about? And if we're honest with ourselves, there, there are many times when we're confused as we think about this question. We see a variety in the scripture stories, in the doctrines, in the moral practices. We, we, we see variety in our practices as a church, how we gather, what we do when we gather. But as we look into this passage and as we consider Jesus' words, Jesus draws together everything for us. He reveals there's this coherency, there's this shape, there's this direction to all that we are as the people of God. And it's this. Jesus has died for our sins that we would have communion with God. Jesus has died for our sins so that we would have communion with God. 
And so we can turn our attention and ask, well, how does this help us as the people of God? How does this move us forward as the people of God? How does this change us as the people of God? And three exhortations ring out from this passage. The first exhortation that we need to hear from this passage is this. Jesus is preaching to us, cling to my blood, cling to my blood. Psalm 24 verse 3 asks a very specific question. The psalmist asks, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? We ask, well, what is the psalmist talking about? What is he asking? Well, essentially he's asking, who can have communion with the holy God of the scriptures? Who can dwell with this God and have intimate relationship with him? And Psalm 24, verse 4, gives an answer to the question the psalmist writes, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Well, what is the answer according to the psalmist? Only the righteous can have communion with this holy God. Only those who have clean hands and a pure heart can dwell with this great God of the scriptures. So this is where we come to the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel preaches to us this morning that there is only one way for sinners like you and me to get clean hands and a pure heart. There's only one way to get righteous before God, and it only comes by means of the blood of Jesus. Our relationship with God is directly dependent upon the blood of Christ. Jesus' blood is the very means by which we enter into communion with God. And Jesus' blood is the very means by which our communion with God is maintained. And Jesus' blood is the very security for our fellowship with him forever. And as we consider Jesus' blood, we have need for it. We have constant need for Jesus' blood at the very beginning of our Christian lives as we come to God for the first time. We have need for the blood of Jesus in the middle of our Christian lives. We, We bank upon his blood shed for our sins. And what we need at the end of our Christian lives as we draw near to death is the blood of Jesus set before us again, our eternal pledge that we are bound to God. And so as we look at this passage, Jesus calls to us and he says, you must cling to my blood. There's a second exhortation. We must cling to the blood and we must also commune with God. Jesus preaches to us, commune with my Father. When we look at the work of Christ in the gospel, we realize that something marvelous has happened. Every impediment, every barrier that has kept us back from fellowship with God has been removed once and for all. Our sin, our evil consciences have been dealt with by the work of Christ. Our hard hearts have been dealt with the spirit of Christ. And the truth of the gospel this morning is this. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is nothing holding you back from communion with God intimate, close communion with God. In light of Christ's work, in light of the gospel, the apostles again and again in the New Testament urge God's people to draw near. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. We read this as our call to worship. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Nothing is holding us back from communion with God. Jesus has brought us in. But we have need to prick our hearts 
with this truth. We can ask ourselves, in light of the truth of the gospel and all that Christ has accomplished for us through the shedding of his blood, we have to ask, well, have we put to full use the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do we regularly and habitually draw near to God? In light of the gospel, do we earnestly seek the face of God and make it the main business and agenda of our lives that we might know this God and see his face? And Jesus comes to us in this text and he urges us on, he exhorts us, he says, commune with God. There's nothing holding you back. I have shed my blood for your sins. There's a third exhortation. Commit yourself to the means. Commit yourself to the means. If Jesus has cleansed us from our sins and he's bound us to God forever with his blood, we, we ask well, what does it practically look like to commune with God in this life? What does it look like for me to commune with God tomorrow? What does it look like for me to commune with God next Sunday? How does this look like in my life? Well, God has graciously given to us all sorts of means, and our answer is found in these means. We commune with God through the practice of these means. He has given means to us as a corporate body, He's given to us the gift of the preaching of the word. He's given us the gift of the sacraments. He's given us the gift of the fellowship of the saints. He's given to us means as individuals that we are to carry on day by day. He's given us the word that we can take home and study for ourselves. He's given us the gift of prayer where we can go by ourselves and seek the face of God. And this text begins to change the way we view the means that God has given us. The means that God has given us, whether we're thinking about the corporate means God has given us, gathering together on a specific day of the week, or, or the individual means we get to practice day by day, we realize when we look at this text that they're not an optional extra for the Christian life, that we can partake of when we have time or energy or when our schedule permits. They're not something that just mature Christians do. No, they are the means, they are the way that we commune with God in this present life. It's how we carry on with God. And this is so helpful for us when we catch the vision of the gospel that we might have communion with God. It changes the way when we read our Bibles. When we open up our Bibles in the morning, we don't sit down and think, well, I need to to meet my quota of pages today. I need to read three chapters, I just need to get it done. No, when we catch a a vision of the end of the gospel, the goal of the gospel, all of a sudden we see sweetness in this. Well, I come, I open up the scriptures to hear the word of my father. I come to the scriptures to hear the word of my friend and my elder brother, Jesus Christ. It changes the way when we go to God in prayer. We're not just putting our time in. I just need to pray 10 minutes today and get that done. No, we we see the end for which Christ died, that we might have communion with God. We we view prayer as the sweet intimacy that we carry on day by day with our God. We're entering into his throne room and laying hold of his, his merciful character. And when we gather as a people, we're not just checking off a box at the beginning of our weeks. I attended church. No, when we see the end of the gospel, the reason for why Christ died, that we might have communion with God, we realize that we're, we're tasting right now that end. 
We're dwelling with God in this moment. Christ is ministering to our needs as he applies the word of God to our hearts. We come expecting to meet with Christ. It changes everything. And so the call from our passage is to commit ourselves to the means. Commit yourself to the means. This is how you commune with God day by day, week by week, year by year. And so, dear friends, Christ has died. He is the last sacrifice for sins. Why? So that he might effect communion with God for all time. So then as God's people, what must we do? Well, we must, as a people, cling to the blood of Jesus. We must commune with God and we must commit ourselves to the means that God has provided. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for Jesus' words in Mark chapter 14. We need clarity in our lives. And Jesus gives us precious clarity. He has set before us his death and what it means. He is the last sacrifice for sins. And so we make it our aim to cling to his blood day by day. And we're so thankful for the results of his gospel work that he has brought us near to you. And so we make it our aim, we make it our aim to commune with you through the means. Oh, Father, we pray that you would graciously use this word in our lives to give us clarity and to push us forward in faith. We give thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen.